0: You'll find God's Word today, um, we're reading two different passages, one from the Gospel of Luke, and then another from the Gospel, a parallel passage from the Gospel of Matthew. The Luke passage is in your pew Bible at page 1114, and the Matthew passage you'll find at page 1046, and of course, it's helpful that it's on the screens as well. So, uh, if you would follow along as I read to you this revealed Word, of God. Beginning Luke seventeen, verses three to six. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sends sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then we turn to Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, reading through 35, and this is entitled, uh, The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... As I had mercy on you, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. Please be seated.
1: If I have not had the, the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Dan Smith. I'm uh, an assistant pastor here at the church. My, my title is congregational care pastor. Um, our senior pastor Bruce O'Neill is here, um, but he is going to be um, working with our, spending some time with our high school ministry, and uh, so he's got the morning free to to do that. So I have the the privilege to be able to minister God's word with us this morning. From time to time, uh, people will ask me. So what do you do here? Um, and I won't I won't attempt to answer that question here this morning. Um, but one of the things that that I do find myself doing, uh, and, and sometimes it feels like that it's that way more and more all the time. Um, but I I do find myself having the opportunity to try to walk alongside people who are dealing with relational conflict. And one of the things that I've learned in that is that no two conflicts are the same. Uh, Everybody's different. Every, every situation is different. And so I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that there is one simple overarching solution to all conflict. It's just not that simple. But I do think that there, that in my experience anyway, that there is a common, there's a common thread. And, and, and that common thread is this, that very often in conflicts, there is an inability to process repentance and forgiveness. You don't have to read very much of the New Testament before you start to realize that Jesus calls his disciples to a life of radical forgiveness. Sometimes it's marital. Sometimes it's relationships between a a parent and a child. but, But it can just be between two people. Or multiple people. But but this idea of repentance and forgiveness is is what I have found in my experience to be very important and and what, what happens what' what's interesting to me in these two passages of scripture that we've read is that Jesus instructs his disciples about this forgiveness about how, how he calls them to this radical forgiveness and the response is you you got to be kidding you You're going to have to give us more faith to do this because we don't have what it takes in order to forgive the way that you're calling us to forgive. And actually, Jesus responds by saying, Well, yes, I have. In fact, he says, "If If you have just the faith the size of a mustard seed, then you could tell this mulberry tree to uproot itself and, and it would do it. There are other places where Jesus says something very similar where he says you could tell this mountain to go throw itself into the, into the sea and it would do it. But do you see here that this metaphor that Jesus is using, referring to the tree or, or making the mountain fall into the sea, is not something that ought to lead us to an application where we all leave here and say, okay, so your job today is now to go command trees and mountains to go move themselves. That's not the point. These are metaphors for forgiveness. Because Jesus is recognizing what they are, what these disciples are saying, which is, forgiveness is hard. Lord, you're, you're telling me to forgive these people that have hurt me, that have wronged me. You might as well be commanding a mountain to go jump in the ocean because it's going to be about that easy. And so Jesus is saying, no, I have given you what you need. You have what it takes in order to be able to forgive the way that I'm calling you to do that. In the Matthew 18 passage, Jesus even ups the ante. In the the Luke passage, it's seven times. That's how many times you you forgive the person who sins against you. But in the Matthew 18 passage, Jesus says 70 times, seven times. Can you imagine having someone sin against you over and over again? and over, and over, and over, and over. You get the point, right? Jesus says forgive. Or, can you imagine someone sinning against you, even if it's just one time, but, but the pain that they cause you, the wound that they have inflicted on you is so painful that you need to forgive them day after day, after day, after day. Why? Because you feel the pain. You feel the wound every day. Jesus says, forgive. I think think both of those scenarios are are encompassed here. They're, They're in view here. From these passages, I'd like to walk us through why we need to forgive, what forgiveness is, and how to do it why we need to do it, what forgiveness is, and how to do it. And so let's start with, with why we need to forgive. Jesus tips it off right, right away in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, where he says, watch yourselves, be on guard for yourself. And I think the reason that he, he says that he starts off this way is because our natural tendency when someone sins against us is to put our attention on them. How could they do that to me? What kind of a monster must they be in order to do that? You know, and, and so we, we focus on them. We focus on how horrible they are. We focus on how, how, how hard-hearted they must be. Or how bad their character must be. So we dwell on them. And I think what Jesus is saying right off the top here is when someone wrongs you and your instincts lead you to focus your attention on them, that's when you need to pay attention to yourself. To your response, to your own heart. Most of us have heard the phrase that it's possible to win the battle but lose the war. And I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying it's possible to win the battle of justice but lose the war of a forgiving spirit. That you can seek justice, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that justice is a bad thing, I mean, justice is biblical. But he's saying you can win the battle of of justice but lose the war, the bigger bigger picture of grace and an unforgiving spirit. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no root of bitterness grows up to cause trouble and defile you. And so he's using this, this bitterness root as... As an analogy for forgiveness, Tim Keller points out that, that this word wrath, you're probably familiar with the word wrath. I mean, intuitively we kind of know what it means. It means anger. It's what we feel toward people who hurt us or who do wrong things and we feel justified in our anger. Wrath. But Tim Keller says that, that the word wrath shares the same semantic range with the word wreath. Well, what's a wreath? A wreath is twisted. That's what it means. I mean, we think of wreath, we think of a pretty thing at Christmas time on the door. But a wreath is something where you whatever you're going to make it out of, whether it's sticks or thorns or whatever it is, and you twist them. What Keller suggests is that that when you when you harbor this kind of wrath in your heart, it will twist you. It will distort you. And then he goes on to point out that there's a third word that also fits within this, this group of words that we, that we don't really use anymore at all, and that's the word wraith. A wraith is a ghost. A wraith is a, is a haunted spirit that, that just lives in the past and can't get over the past. You see, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that be careful because if you don't forgive, then that's an opportunity for a root of bitterness to come up in your life. What's, what's so dangerous about a root is that it's underground and very often you can't see it. You can cut the tree down you think you're done, but then a shoot comes up. Why? Because you didn't kill the root. And the root comes up. Bitterness comes up. And it will twist you. And it will haunt you and you'll become a person who can't live beyond the past. If you win the battle for justice, which which is a battle worth winning, I'm not suggesting that it's not important, but if you lose the war of forgiveness, then that's what what will become of us. That's why it's important that we learn how to forgive. So what is forgiveness? Before I I give you a a working definition for forgiveness, let me say just a couple of things about what forgiveness is not. Sometimes to understand what something is, it's helpful to also understand what what it is not. And, And so let me just give you a couple of things real quick. Forgiveness is not saying that the wrong that someone has done to you didn't happen. It's not excusing it. It's not, it's not saying, hey, pretend that it never happened. It's not saying that it's okay. Forgiveness is not condoning bad behavior. It's also not saying that you've not been hurt. Forgiveness is not the cancellation of pain. Just because you forgive somebody does not mean that you will no longer hurt. So it's important for us to understand that. Forgiveness is not amnesia. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you you then forget what happened or forget the pain that it caused. A lot of people go to that verse where God says, I will remember your sins no more. And we say, aha, so forgiveness means that you forget. Well, listen, God does not have amnesia. I don't think that's what that means. I think when God says, I will remember your sins no more, He's saying, I will no longer treat you in connection with your sin. I will not treat you as your sins deserve anymore. But it's not saying that God is forgetful. God is not stumbling around in heaven trying to figure out where He put things. So, it's not about forgetting. It's about no longer counting our sins against us, and we're going to talk about that as we talk about forgiveness. But it's not, it's not saying, okay, I never think about it anymore. Forgiveness also is not the same thing as trust. One of the things that we're going to, we're going to see here in a few minutes is that forgiveness is a choice that we can make, whether, regardless of the response of the person who, who hurt us. But trust is something different. Trust has to be rebuilt. Trust has to be reestablished. And so they're not the same thing. And then finally, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that everything about our relationship is going to go back to the way it was. It can. Hopefully it will. And, and, And in order for a relationship to get that kind of restoration and healing, forgiveness has to happen. So forgiveness is a prerequisite for healing and restoration, but even true forgiveness is not a guarantee that the relationship will go back. In fact, sometimes relationships shouldn't go back to the way that they were for, for the, for the trust reasons that, that I alluded to. And so we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more, but I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that forgiveness is not. And so here's, here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is no longer requiring someone to pay for what they've done. It's no longer requiring them to pay for what they have done or for what they haven't done. So we don't make them pay. We see it in the story of the the master and the servant in Matthew 18, where you have this king, this master, if you will, and he is settling his accounts, and and so he's collecting on his receivables. So he comes to this particular servant who owes him a tremendous amount of money. It's a lot of money. And he he comes to this servant, he says, All right, it's time for you to pay. And, and the servant can't pay. He doesn't have the money. And so he you can, you can envision him kind of going down on his knees and asking this master for leniency. Can, can you give me more time? Can you give me mercy? I'll pay you, but I just I just can't do it right now. Well, the master amazingly responds by saying, you know what? I'm going to cancel your debt. See, typically there would have been two other responses that the master could have, could have given to this. The master, there's a vindictive kind of response that was not uncommon, and then there was sort of an apathetic response that was not uncommon. The vindictive response was typically to say, I want every penny that you owe me, and therefore I'm gonna put you and your family and everything you have into prison, And I, I, until I get every penny you owe me. And so, so the vindictiveness is, I want, I want all my money, and I want you to suffer until I get it. So that's one response. The, the more apathetic response would be to say, well, I, I don't necessarily need all my money. I'm just gonna sell you, presumably into slavery. And, and I may not get all my money back because I probably, you know, the amount of money that this man owed, he probably wasn't going to get enough money by selling him and all his possessions and all his family into slavery. But he was saying, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to sell you. I'll take whatever I get. It's better than nothing. And I don't really care what happens to you. But this master didn't do either one of those things. Instead, he forgave. He canceled the debt. He essentially said, you don't owe the money anymore, and you no longer have to pay. If you think about it, for us, what does that mean? What what does that involve for us? Well, it involves three things. If we're really going to learn how to forgive in in, in this kind of way, it's going to require that we do at least three things. It's going to require that that we identify with the person who has wronged us, it's going to require that we inwardly begin to pay down the debt ourselves. And then thirdly, it's going to require that we begin to seek the good of the person who has harmed us. To identify with them, to pay it down ourselves, and to seek their good. Let's start with identifying with the wrongdoer. Immediately after Jesus says, watch yourself, which is the, you know, pay attention, don't, don't only... Um, Focus on the person who's done you wrong. Focus on your response. He says, if your brother sins. And then in the other passage, when Peter comes and he says, how many times will my brother or my sister come and sin against me? And the point that I'm trying to emphasize for us is that in both passages, the wrongdoer is referred to as our brother or our sister. Now we may look at that and say, oh, this is good news actually, because what Jesus is teaching here is that we only have to, be- we only have to forgive people that we love. No, I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. I don't even think the scripture is saying that we only have to forgive the people that we can identify with, or the people that, that, that is one of us, you know, that, that we feel warmly toward. Because in Mark's gospel chapter 11 verse 25, Jesus says, if you hold anything against anyone, Forgive them. Release them. So certainly Jesus is saying that a brother or sister who sins against us is still our brother or sister. That doesn't change. But I think the bigger, the bigger point that he's making is that, that when you think about the people who have wronged you, identify with them. See, our tendency is to, is to look at them, and I alluded to this already. We look at them and we start to focus on how different we are from them. We look at what they've done, and, they say, and we say, I would never do something like that. I'm much better than that. I was raised better than that. And so we, we emphasize the, the dissimilarity between us and them. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, no, don't emphasize the dissimilarity. Emphasize the similarity. Because the reality is we have much more in common with them than we have out of common with them. So there's this identification. There's a seminary professor at Yale Divinity School named Miroslav Volf who is an immigrant to our country. He himself has endured a great deal of persecution in his own life. But he's written a book called A Spacious Heart. And in that book he says this. He says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Instead of focusing on the differences between us and those who wrong us, we need to see the similarities and how much we actually are just like them. And so that's the, that's the first part. The second step here involves inwardly paying down the debt for them. We, we know this intuitively that the word forgive is kind of an economic term. It's an economic concept. It, it involves paying something. And so in, in the case of the, of the servant and, and the king, what I want you to understand is that anytime time forgiveness happens... Somebody pays. Every time. There's no such thing as forgiveness where someone does not pay. In other words, forgiveness is not just saying, let's pretend like this never happened. Forgiveness means to pay. So let's look at the, this master and this servant. We don't really know where the debt came from, right? We know it's a lot of money. We know that it's more money that the servant can pay. But we don't don't know how the debt came to be. We don't know if if the master loaned the servant a good deal of money. We don't know if the servant did something terrible that that ruined or destroyed the master's property and therefore he owes him to, to pay him back for it. We just don't know. But we know this. The master has forgiven him the debt. And what I would suggest to you is that therefore what we also know is that means that the master paid it himself. Because if it was a loan, you know, if the master loaned all this money to the servant and the the servant can't pay, and the master says, I forgive the debt, then what that means is the money has already left the master's bank account, right? He's already paid it. It's already gone. Or if it was some type of damage that happened to the master's property and the master forgives the debt, well, whose property is now damaged? And it's just going to stay that way, the master. Or if the property is ever going to be repaired, who's going to repair it? At whose cost? At whose expense? It's going to be the master. So forgiveness always involves someone paying. Now the, the Bible applies this idea not only to money, but it applies it to moral and relational wrong as well, offenses. Instead of money, though, the currency is pain and suffering for the most part. When someone hurts you, what you typically feel is pain. There's a wound associated with it. And so I want you to think about this with me for a minute. If someone wrongs you and you decide that you're going to make them pay, how are you going to do it? How do, you, how do you make someone pay when they have sinned against you? Well, Sometimes we force the financial equation, right? You know, we think, well, how am I going to make them pay? Well, the only way that I really know how to make somebody pay is with money. And so we try to figure out a way to convert pain and suffering into a scale that equals dollars, right? That's what we do in the legal system. We say, well, I want to be compensated for my pain and suffering. Give me money. So that's one way that we can do it. But there's other ways that we make people pay. Sometimes what we do is we we say... Um, I'm going, to humil- I'm, I'm going to yell at them, right? You ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. It's all right. But, you know, somebody wrongs you, and, and you want to make them pay. And so you lash out at them, and you tell them how horrible they are. How in the world could you do this to me? What's wrong with you? And so we humiliate them. Make them pay. Maybe maybe we, we try to damage their reputation, we run them down to other people. We start telling other people how horrible they are. You know about so-and-so? You see what they did to me? I can't believe how horrible they are. And we do that as a way to try to make them pay. We try to damage their reputation. Another way is that we might just be more sophisticated about it and we might just silently root for their pain. You know, we don't, we're not gossips. We're not going to confront them. We're just going to let it go, but then we're going to go off in our corner we're going to say, you know what, one day that person's behavior is going to catch up with them. And when it does, they're going to pay. I hope I'm around to see that. Because we want it. We want them to pay. The idea is that, that they owe us, and we want them to pay with an in-kind currency That'll make us feel better somehow. So that's how we make other people pay. But now think about it the other way. Think, well, before we think about it the other way, just for a minute, what's that going to do to you? If you choose that approach, if you choose that approach of, I'm going to make them pay, what's that going to do to you? This is a quiz, this is like a review quiz now, okay, from the beginning of the sermon. What's it going to do to you? It's going to twist you. It's going to distort you. It's going to make you over. It's going to turn you into a ghost that can't, can't escape the past because you're always obsessed with what, what, what's going to be paid for. Well, that's one way that we can pay the debt. The other way is that we can pay it ourselves. And that's what I want you to think about. What does that look like? What would it look like for us to begin to pay down the debt for someone else? With money, we, we know what that means. You know, you know, We can write a check. We can, we, can, we can pay with cash. We, we understand how payment works with that. But how do we, how do we handle paying when, it, when the currency is pain and suffering? Well, here's, here's what it would look like. It means that when you want to lash out at them, when you want to yell at them and humiliate them, you don't. You don't do it. It means that when you want to run them down in front of other people, you want to gossip about them and tell other people about how horrible they are. You don't. You kind of adopt the the thumper rule, you know, from Bambi. If you don't have anything nice to say, you don't say anything at all. But you don't. You just don't do it. Or when you want to root for their pain, you don't. You pray for them instead. You pray that that God will will work in their life. That you, You pray that God will help them when you want to avoid them and you want to give them the silent treatment, instead you show kindness to them. This is hard. Now you may look at some instances where you say, well, you know, it's not always hard. I mean, some some offenses are just not that great. Well, good. Then it shouldn't be that hard. But sometimes it really is hard. It's costly. It's so costly that when the disciples heard this, they said, I don't think we can do this you haven't given us enough faith to do this you're going to have to give us more faith one of the reasons i think this is so hard is because we tend to look at forgiveness very subjectively and we tend to see it in light of our anger right you ever you ever thought this or you ever heard somebody say this i can't forgive them because i'm just too angry well of course we're angry because we're, we're not paying it down ourselves. We're still trying to make them pay. Well, the more you try to make them pay, the angrier you're going to get. Remember the root of bitterness. That's how it works. And if we keep it up, it'll become that, that root that will twist us. What we need to do is we need to make the decision to pay it down ourselves, to grant forgiveness. That phrase, grant forgiveness, includes part of the secret. The word grant means gift. It's not deserved. If if we sit around and we say, I'll forgive them when they deserve it. I'll forgive them when they've earned it. When enough time has gone by. That's, That's not the way forgiveness really works. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a decision to stop making them pay. It's hard. But the point is, it'll set you free. And then, if you do that, then you'll be able to seek the good of the wrongdoer. We don't have uh, that much time to go into great detail here, but I don't really think we need to. I think intuitively we understand what it means to seek the good of someone else. We know what it it means to, to desire what is good for someone. It's only, though, when we've done the hard work on the inside of beginning to pay it down for them that we'll be able to desire their good. Think of it this way. If you if you are are no longer making someone else pay, and you're beginning to pay it down for them by not running them down to other people, not yelling at them, not lashing out at them, not not wishing ill on them, but you're you're actually starting to actually desire what, what is good for them. You can go to someone and you can say something like this, you know what? What you did to me really hurt me. I care about you. I'm trying not to be angry But what you did was hurtful and it was wrong. And the reason I'm saying this to you is because if you do this to other people, it's going to hurt your relationships with other people and ultimately that's not good for you. If you approach somebody that way, they might actually listen to you. You might actually get through and help them. But I guarantee you this, if you go to them and you say, you know what, you hurt me, how dare you, I can't believe you, what's wrong with you? They will see through that. They will recognize that you're not willing their good, you're still trying to get them to pay. And it won't help. It won't help the relationship. So we need to identify with the wrongdoer. We need to inwardly pay down the debt for them and we need to seek the good of those who have wronged us. Now before we... We go on to the last point, which is where do we get the power to do this? How how do we really have this become a part of our life? I do want to say a couple of things about the place for repentance in this process. I know the sermon is about forgiveness. I mean, the title says forgiveness, and the passage is primarily about forgiveness. But the reason I think it's important to talk a little bit about repentance is because repentance is a part of the, the forgiveness process. In fact, I think most of you would agree that it's very difficult to forgive when there is no repentance. And so, so I just want to talk about that for a minute. The reason that, re- for- that repentance is important is because forgiveness is ultimately about a relationship. We've, we've been talking about forgiveness in, in terms of a transaction. It's either the payment of a debt or the canceling of a debt. And that makes sense but what's what's important here is to understand that that when Jesus is talking about forgiveness he's talking about it from the standpoint of how do we get to a place where a relationship could actually be restored where healing can take place i mean think about it from the from the standpoint of the cross the christian faith it, you know the, the core of it is the belief that jesus died on the cross to cancel our debt right to atone for our sins but believing in the cross isn't just for the purpose of having a piece of paper that says paid in full. Now I know, to tell us die, that's what Jesus said on the cross, it means paid in full. And that's true, that's important. But Jesus didn't just die on the cross to, to pay an abstract debt. That's a means to a bigger end, and that is that when we put our faith in Christ, what we're really brought into is a restored relationship with the God who loves us. Do you see the difference between just nodding our head to Jesus paid for my sins to actually entering into a relationship, a restored relationship with God because we've now been set free? That's the goal. That's what we're called to really be pursuing. And this is why repentance is required. If Jesus just died for my sins, and I just keep on sinning, then what kind of relationship do you think I'm really going to have with God? It's like this. If I, you know, those of you who have young children, you might be able to envision something like this, okay? They spill milk all over the floor. And you get down on your hands and knees, and you got paper towels and towels and... You know, anything you can find, I always find like Windex, and my wife says, that's not for cleaning the floor. It's alright, it's better than what I got, right? So, so you, you know, you get down in your hands and knees, you clean up this, this big mess, and then as you stand up, you proceed to see your children standing there with a gallon of milk, they take the lid off and they just turn it over and start dumping it. Okay. I know, 70 times 7. But the relationship is not gonna go well. Right? Because, And, and this, is why, this is why the Scripture says that the grace of the cross is not a license to sin. If you forgive me for something, but I just keep turning around and doing it over and over again, that's not going to bode well for the relationship. That's why repentance is important, because repentance is saying, you know what, I agree that what I've done is wrong, I've hurt you. And I don't want to hurt you. I want a relationship with you instead. Because trust is a part of this. Remember how we said forgiveness and trust are not the same? See, if, if, if I sin against you, or you sin against me, and there's forgiveness granted, but then we just keep doing it over and over again, and there's not a change either in, in, in heart and in actions, then I can forgive you, but very likely I'm not going to trust you. Why? I'll tell you why, because I'm not a fool. Well, you could debate that. But I don't think I'm a fool. And if you hurt me, and, and, you, and there's no sign of change in your heart or in your actions toward me, I can forgive you, but I'm going to be very reluctant, very hesitant to re-engage with you in a, in a trusting relationship because you haven't given me any reason to trust you. And you can debate whether or not I'm a fool, but what you can't debate is that God is not a fool. He is not. And that's why He calls us to repentance. He says, I, I know you're a sinner. That's not shocking to God. God is not put off by our sin. He knows we're sinners. And He's very willing to forgive us. He's, he's given His own Son that we might be forgiven. But He calls us to change because He's interested in a relationship, not just in a declaration. And so we need to see that that the difference is between the transaction and a relationship. Another reason that this is so important for the relationship is because you and I are called to forgive. As followers of Christ, we're called to forgive. But, But think about this. If I have sinned against you and I'm a Christian and I know you're called to forgive me, Could I make it easy on you to forgive me? Could I make it hard for you to forgive me? I think the answer is yes to both. I could make it hard for you to forgive me by acting like I don't really care about what I've done to you, right? But I could make it easy for you to forgive me if I would come to you and say, you know what, what I did against you was wrong, and it hurt you, and I'm very sorry. I don't want to do that again. I want a relationship with you, and I want to be trustworthy in your eyes. That's different. And that's why I think repentance is so important, because we have the ability to either make it hard for people to forgive us, or we have the ability to make it easier for people to forgive us. It's about our heart, and it's about the change in our lives. I think, by the way, this is why God calls us to confess our sins to each other. It's not, it's, he's not calling us to confess our sins to each other so God will forgive us. I think what what the scriptures recognize is that every sin, every single sin that we commit, is a sin against God. That's true, but the vast majority of the sins that we commit are also against other people. And so, if we just confess our sins to God, but we don't confess our sins to the humans that we've offended, then we've only we've only completed half of the process. It, it would be it would be like me, you know, sinning against Josh here. Okay, I, let's say I've done something horrible to Josh. Okay, And then I go over here to Van and I say, hey, Van, I need to apologize because I sinned against Josh. And Van could say, well, that's all right, Dan, I forgive you. That would make no sense. Because I didn't sin against Van, I sinned against Josh, I need to go to Josh. So I think that's why the scripture says, confess your sins to God, absolutely. But also confess your sins to one another because it's one another, by and large, that you sin against as well. And if God has called us to be forgiving one another, well, if I'm the sinner, if I'm the offender, then I have a role that I can play through repentance by going to them and taking responsibility for what I've done. It's about trustworthiness and rebuilding that trust that, that, that is required for a healed and restored relationship. So so really, the question boils down to this. Well, how do we do all this? How do we identify with the wrongdoer how do we pay down the debt ourselves how do we will or seek the good of those who have wronged us and how do we repent and take responsibility for our own our own offenses and seek to change well the disciples when when jesus called them to that kind of a life they said we can't do it you haven't given us enough faith to do that jesus said actually you do have what you need to do that because you have me If you understand who I am and what I have done for you, then you have what you need in order to live this kind of life of radical forgiveness and repentance. You see, in Christ, we are debtors. We are servants whose debt has been canceled, whose debt has been paid in full by someone else. And therefore, we are free. But in Matthew 18, if, if you can still recall the, the parable that, that Jesus tells here, in Matthew 18, there, there is this, this story where the owner, the master, cancels the debt of the servant who owed him a great deal of money. And then Jesus tells us that that freed servant had the audacity to go and have one of his fellow servants who owed him a little bit of money thrown in prison until he paid his debt. Do you know what you know what was so shocking about this? I mean, we I and I know that we can we can kind of track it and we can say, well, he was forgiven much and then he would, wasn't willing to forgive the the smaller debt and and you know, and we're we're repulsed by that and that's that's appropriate. But here's what I think is really going on that it, that is so galling to me about about this this servant. This servant has just had his very large debt forgiven by the master. And then he, a servant, then goes and starts acting like a master toward this other servant. You see what I'm saying? The servant started acting like a master. And that's where he got out of bounds. I think what, what Jesus is saying to us is that when you and I demand payment, we are servants acting like masters. And we've lost sight of who we are. We've lost sight of, of who the master is and we've lost sight of the fact that we as well are also servants. The only way that we will be able to forgive the way that Jesus calls us to is if we see the master who became our servant. I love how Paul says it where he says, Jesus was in very nature God, but he humbled himself. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He says, if, if you understand who I am and you understand who you are in me, that I am the master who became your servant and therefore you are also a servant, then you will have what you need in order to identify with the wrongdoer because you'll see yourself as a fellow servant. You'll have what you need in order to inwardly pay down the debt for them because I paid down your debt. You'll have what you need to seek the good of the wrongdoer because you'll recognize that they're, you're not better than them. They're not worse than you. You can truly desire them. They're they're your brother. They're your sister. They're fellow servants. And you'll have what you need to own your own sins and your own offenses and see that that you have your own need for mercy and grace from your master who became a servant. And so I want to encourage us to to take this time to, to consider this. If you're a sinner, and you are, But if you recognize that you're a sinner, don't deny it. Don't hide it. Don't try to diminish it. Don't try to say, oh, it's really not that bad. It really is that bad. Don't blame somebody else. Instead, confess it. Own it. Take responsibility for it. And seek a relationship with the God who has already paid for it. And seek healing and restoration in your relationships with other people. In other words, seek to rebuild trustworthiness with the people that you have wronged. If you uh, if you take your your worship guide, you've got to find mine. There's a prayer of, of confession printed there. I just want to encourage us to take a, a moment and, and consider praying this prayer of confession together. And then after we pray this prayer together, I want to uh, let's just take a couple of moments in the quietness of our own heart to go before the Lord and confess our sins before God, to, to, to own them, take responsibility for them, and also give some thought to who is it? Who are the humans that, that my sins have, have hurt or wounded? That, that I might also go to them and express my my heart to them and that my sorrow for, for the hurt that I've caused them. and so um, so let's do that let's let's read this prayer together and then after we pray this together, um, take a couple of minutes and pray silently and then the, the worship team is going going to lead us back into the presence of God because his grace is sufficient for all of us. let's pray most merciful God. to the glory of Your name.